Good morning. I'd like to extend a special welcome to our visitors who are with us this morning. Um, we're really glad you're here. Glad you could uh, worship with us and be with us. I uh, wanted to make a brief announcement about next week. Uh, we're going to have a special um, kind of focus throughout the week, both in chapel and in some evening events. Um, we're going to have a week focused on human identity and sexuality. Uh, Dr. Eames is going to be in chapel on Monday talking about biblical sexuality. Um, yeah, he's awesome. Uh, Hannah Bloomquist is going to be in chapel on Wednesday talking about loneliness. And, and Amy Bird is going to be in chapel on Friday talking about uh, friendship between brothers and sisters. Uh, there will also be a Monday evening event for both uh, men and women in the chapel at 8 p.m. with Mark McElmurray from Covenant Seminary. Uh, talking about um, sexual brokenness, pornography, um, and uh, sexual addictions. Uh, and then Thursday, 8 o'clock in the chapel, uh, Amy Bird is going to be speaking on uh, women, men, um, and the Bible. So uh, next week will be a good week. You should do those things. Um, so I <clears throat> am at times struck by the, the fairly deep capacity that we have to be uh, honest about ourselves and our weaknesses. Um, I will tell you, and I have no problem telling you that one of my weaknesses is in the world of matchmaking. Um, I have never successfully um, matchmade anyone. In fact, people that I think should be together really end up usually not liking one another. Um, so times where I've thought, wow, those two would be wonderful together, I've been horribly wrong. Um, I will tell you that I do a bit better after people get together, like, and they make that move, and then I'm, I have much better luck in assessing um, whether or not that relationship is going to have legs. Um, but the whole beginning process is bad. Um, we also, while at times we can be honest, like I just was, uh, we have a deep willingness to believe what we really want to be true about ourselves. This is perhaps my favorite example um, in the world. In the last 47 years of my life, primarily in the last, like, what, 15, uh, I don't know, like 15 or 20 of doing uh, pastoral ministry in different contexts, um, here's something that I have heard from people over and over and over. I'm really gifted at reading people. I've always been really intuitive with people. What I have never heard anyone say is, yeah, I stink at reading people. Uh, uh, don't ask me about that person because I am wrong about people most of the time. Um, if you think about it and you're honest with yourself, have you ever said to someone, you know, I'm really not very good at reading people, and think how many times you have said, I'm really good at reading people. I know people. I'm super intuitive when it comes to people. Uh, I think the reason that we want to believe that about ourselves is because there is an, an inherent understanding that knowing people and conversely um, being known and truly known by people is essential to being human. It's wired into us as part of being uh, part of uh, the Imago Dei and being created in God's image. Um, our passage that we're going to look at this morning is about being known. It starts with God knowing a man, then God making himself known in word, and God making himself known in action. So, before we jump in, will you pray with me? 
Uh, gracious God, uh, be with us by your Spirit, we ask. Um, speak through these words. We pray for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So Andrew and Peter have met Jesus, and they find Philip, and Philip finds Nathanael and tells him that they have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and that also the prophets spoke about, this man Jesus from Nazareth, come and see. And Nathanael is uh, doubtful, um, but they go and they see. And as Nathanael is approaching Jesus, Jesus says to him, Nathanael, I saw you under a fig tree. And we don't know what was happening under the fig tree. We don't know what Nathanael was doing there. Um, I tend to think, I like the idea that he was praying or that he was somehow asking God to, to um, make himself known. Uh, maybe a prayer, let us just see you, Lord. And when Jesus tells him, I saw you under the fig tree, whatever was happening there, Nathanael knows that something special has happened. And he proclaims and he calls out and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he's essentially calling him the Messiah. He's wedding these two terms uh, from Psalm 2 about the Messiah that, would to, that was to come in the line of David. Um, but remember, when we talk Messiah, we have a, a loaded concept because we understand, looking back, the full um, picture and the full robust nature of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. At that point, on the lips of, of Nathaniel, in the minds of the disciples, um, Messiah was simply the spirit-led king of Israel, the one who would bring hope to God's people. And he's not wrong, but he doesn't fully understand. They will come to understand. Um, but Jesus then says to him something very interesting. He says, because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, you believe, but you're going to see greater things than these. And he's about to turn on his head the expectations that they have of what this Messiah is going to do. Their hope is too small, and their conception of the king is too limited. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and here he's talking to Nathaniel, um, you're going to see greater things than these. And then he says, but I say to you all, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And when he says that, in the ears of those men, those four men standing there hearing that, the disciples, they would have immediately had a conjuring back to their history. And they would have heard the narrative of Jacob, their forefather. Because as Jacob in Genesis 28 is coming out of the promised land, going to Haran to look for a wife, as he's leaving, he falls down and he has a dream at Bethel. And in his dream, here's what he sees. He's laying sleeping and he sees a staircase connected to the earth and reaching up into the heavens. And on that staircase going up and down are the angels of God. And then as he's seeing this vision, at the top of the staircase is the Lord himself. And the Lord stands in glory at the top of the staircase and he speaks a confirmation to Jacob, confirming his covenant promises that he's made to him. That's what would have been in their minds. Jacob then wakes up and he says this glorious thing. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. 
He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And there, with that background, we hear Jesus' comment one more time. You will all see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. But this time, the Lord is not at the top of the staircase speaking down. The Lord Jesus is the staircase. He's now standing before Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, and Peter as Jesus, the Messiah, the union between heaven and earth, the mediator between man and God. He, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. He is the gate of heaven. He is the locus of worship. And we redirect Jacob's words, and they're perfect in the mouths of the disciples. They should have said, the Lord is in this place, even though we're not yet aware of it. How awesome is this place in which you, Jesus, the Lord, stand before us. You are the true house of God. You're the very gate of heaven. Jesus is beginning to reveal himself, first in word and coming in action. So we have this kind of heavy theological uh, picture. Jesus had just made this amazing claim about who he is. And then we get this beautiful kind of abrupt shift. And we hear that three days later, they're doing something super normal and superhuman. They're at a wedding. Three days later, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother is there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so they show up at a wedding, Jesus and his disciples. And again, when we think Jesus and his disciples at this point, I know we have a tendency to think Jesus and the, all, everything the disciples had experienced. At this point, this is brand new. This is a group of disparate men that are following this man that they believe is the Messiah, the Spirit led king of Israel, but they have no idea yet what it fully means. They're about to find out and about to begin to see as Jesus reveals himself. So they're at this wedding. Um, and when we talk wedding, I know we bring our conception of a wedding, but an ancient, an ancient Near Eastern wedding was a different animal. Um, it was a massive celebration. It would have looked a little bit like this. We don't know everything and don't pretend to, but we do know a few pieces. One, um, the friends of the groom in the middle of the night would have gone from the groom's house to the bride's house with torches and lamps to get her. And as they're going, they would have been yelling and proclaiming and singing, the bridegroom cometh, the bridegroom cometh. Now, when you hear that, you should hear Revelation in a different context. But that's what they're doing. They go and they get the bride and they carry the bride back to the groom's house. And then ensues a massive celebration, a feast, a wedding feast. Um, it could have lasted a day, it could have lasted a week, but they were huge. And one of the massive parts was the sacred duty of hospitality. So the bridegroom was responsible for being the host to all of the people that would come, the friends, family, visitors, village. Um, and they were a big deal in the community. There was even a, a, an ancient Near Eastern proverb that basically said, if you don't invite me to your wedding, don't expect me at your funeral, right? So you had this deep sense of, I know, kind of harsh, huh? <laughs> uh, what if I didn't know you when you got married? Uh, but, but yeah, so th this, this, this hugely important piece is this sacred duty of hospitality. So Jesus and his new disciples, they're there at a wedding, and something goes horribly 
wrong. When the wine was gone, that's not good. Um, for the bridegroom whose sacred duty is hospitality, his wedding is about to turn into an instance of disgrace and an instance of shame. And Jesus' mother sees it, and she knows what's happened. And she goes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says something that might kind of, kind of set us off a little bit. It may sound a little bit um, wrong with his words, but, but hear, it, um, hear it rightly. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Um, he's not being disrespectful. He's not referring to his, his wife with like, or his mother with like, a, yeah, uh, it's one of those days, I guess, uh, with like a disrespectful distance. Um, it, it's more a, respect, a, a, a term of respect, a dear woman. But what's happened is Jesus is now set on his mission to the cross, and everything will be subjugated to that mission, including his family relationships. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet here. The time of my glorification, my mission, is, a, is unfolding. But my glory will be revealed later. And then she, with just delightful, wonderful faith, she probably knows that her son um, is, is used to taking care of, fixing, making things happen. She says, do whatever he tells you to the servants. And then we get this picture, and you likely know the story, but I want to read it anyway. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So these six stone water jars sitting at the entrance to the home, they were used for, for ceremonial washing where people would cleanse their hands, cleanse their feet. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And imagine as they fill them up, when I think filled to the brim, you know when you fill a glass to the point where it comes up to the top and it's poking over just a little bit and it feels like it shouldn't be that high because it, the sides can't actually hold it, but there's some weird science thing happening that I don't understand. Um, actually, if somebody could explain that to me at some point, I would appreciate that. <clears throat> so that's what's happening, science. Um, then he told them, now... <laughs> Now draw, out some, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Um, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine later, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you've saved the best till now. And the master of the banquet is just expressing the reality. The way that it would usually go is they'd bring the great stuff out first, and then as people had more to drink and their taste buds became less sensitive, they'd bring out the crummy stuff. Well, the reality for him is he brought out, he brought out what he had. It ran out, and now the best is coming. And then we're told in verse 11 that uh, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The revelation of Jesus' glory is not that he could turn water into wine. The revelation of his glory lies in the fact that on the heels of revealing his identity by way of word, when he told them that they would see heavens open and they'd see 
angels ascending and descending on him, the Son of Man. Now he begins to reveal himself by way of miracle, by action. And he does it with these six stone water jars. They may seem like interesting ancient details that, that John gives us a picture of what they actually were, but they're incredibly important to the story and to Jesus' revelation of himself. The water jars were used for ceremonial washing, and they represent the old order, the old order that's marked by ritual law. And when they are filled to the brim, all the way to the very top, we get a picture of them having come to completion and conclusion. The old order is full. The old order is complete. And the new wine, the new wine represents the new order that Jesus brings. An order that surpasses in every possible way the old order. So here is Jesus revealing his glory by revealing himself. He's the Lord who fulfills the covenant promises of God, the incarnate one who's the image of the invisible God, the one in whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell, and he reveals himself to them in this simple act, this filling of water jars and turning water into wine. And in the same way, he reveals himself to us in the everyday, in a wedding celebration, a classroom, a church service, a hospital room. But at this wedding, this humble wedding, we don't even know the groom and bride's names, right? We're given a glimpse into the new order that Jesus brings. We know that it's better than the old. It surpasses it in every way. But we begin to get a picture of it. He gives us a glimpse. And here is a picture perhaps even a paradigm of Jesus' salvific work. Because here's what Jesus does. He encounters what is. He turns it into something new with a view to what will be. So hear that again. In the salvific work of Jesus Christ, he encounters what is. He turns it into something new, but all with a view to what eventually will be. He encounters a wedding. He comes into this this celebration, um, family, bride, groom. He comes into a wedding that is about to be a source of disgrace and shame. And what does he do? He turns it into a better wedding. He turns it into a source of joy, source of celebration. Um, But he doesn't do so without a view to what will be. It's not by accident that Jesus' first miracle is done at a wedding. Because the wedding that this is pointing to and looking forward to, his first miracle is pointing forward to the consummated glory of the risen Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth when we come as his bridegroom and we come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The first miracle points to the final consummation. And it's intended, and we get a picture of his glory there. But to get to there from this wedding, it's going to come at a price. And it's going to come again at Jesus encountering something, turning it into something new with a view to what will be. And that something is the cross. He encounters the cross, which was an instrument of torture and pain. To die on a cross was to die the most brutal death 
that the Roman officials could offer to anyone. Um, they didn't die um, by a quick stroke. Eventually, when you're crucified, you're asphyxiated, and you hang on the cross, and your weight pulls you down, and when it pulls you down, your diaphragm contracts and you can't breathe, so you push yourself back up, suck in a breath of air and come back down, and eventually they come by and break your legs so you can't push yourself up anymore, and you asphyxiate, and you choke, and you die. Um, Jesus encounters this form of torture, and you think that you would want to say he, he takes this form of torture and he turns it into something new and better, but he doesn't. Instead, what happens is he turns it into something new, a far greater place of torture and suffering than had ever happened before. Because he, as the perfect, sinless Son of God, incarnate God, he goes to the cross and suffers punishment in our place. He takes the place of torture, and it becomes far worse than we could ever possibly imagine. But he, again, does it with a view to what will be, a view to the atoning work that he would accomplish on our behalf for you and for me personally, us in our brokenness, a gift that we no more deserve than that bridegroom deserved the water that Jesus turned into wine. And Jesus encounters us. And we know this, right? Prideful people who left to our own devices love self and hate God. He turns us into forgiven people with new hearts that actually desire God with a view to the day where we will one day see him as he truly is. And those are awesome theological realities. Um, but as I was sitting in this, the thing that struck me the most is we oftentimes talk about Jesus and we look at Hebrews 4, we look at the fact that he was tempted in every way that we've been tempted so that he could understand us. But here's what's mind-blowing. God actually wants us to know him. He wants us as human beings in our finiteness, to know him, to know what he loves, to know what he hates, to know what breaks his heart, to know what brings him joy. God wants us as his people to know him. And so he reveals himself. He reveals himself in the word. He reveals himself in action our lives. He reveals himself perfectly in the sun. He reveals himself in all of creation, every place that our eyes look. He reveals himself in our body as believers. The church of Jesus Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't do it again just so that we'll know. He does it again with a view to what will be. Because here's the thing. We will one day see him as he truly is. We will encounter God and we will see him in his full glory. He desires us to know him now with a view to what will be. And when we see him, we will recognize him, fall down and worship him, and love him for eternity. 
but he wants us to know him. And I think about my life, where I am. Um, I want to know God. I want to know God in the good and the hard. I want to know God when I'm struggling. I want to know God when things are going well. Wherever we are, wherever you are, hear that, that the living God desires that you know him. And he has revealed himself that you might. That's a great hope that we have. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, as you stood before uh, Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter and Philip and told them that they would see the heavens open and the angels descending and ascending upon you, that you were the very gate to heaven. Father, we know that to be true. Um, Lord, we know that in Jesus Christ um, we are known and we are saved. But we thank you, Father, that you desire for us to know you. Um, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would make our hearts um, unable to be content until that is our um, deepest desire. Um, Be with us this day. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would draw us to you and that you would reveal yourself to us in ways unexpected. We pray that you will be with us by your Spirit and in Christ's name. Amen.